weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Welcome along to Game On here on 2FM. I'm Dave Kelly in tonight for Marie. And coming up, Andy Farrell is forced into one change for the potential Six Nations Grand Slam decider with France. Uh, I have no concerns with the people that we've got in waiting uh, in, in the hotel that could just uh, fill a gap just like that and will not miss a beat. So I'm, I'm pleased uh, where we're at as far as that's concerned. Could we see a new breakaway European Super League with up to 40 clubs involved? It is time for change. European club football is at a tipping point. Huge imbalances have emerged across the continent and clubs with glorious European traditions are no longer able to compete. And one of the biggest sporting events on the planet is edging ever closer. We're live in Glendale, Arizona, ahead of Super Bowl 57. You can text 51522 or tweet at Game On to FM. Game On on 2FM. Game on. Now, we will, of course, be getting to the rugby uh, very shortly, but uh, first, uh, one uh, significant uh, piece of uh, Gaelic Games news from today. The Kilmacud Croaks Glen Saga is officially at an end. Following a meeting of the GAA's Central Competitions Control Committee, Kilmacud have been confirmed as AIB All-Ireland Club Football Champions for 2023. In a statement, the GAA said no fault was attributed to Kilmacud Croaks for the situation they found themselves in. After, of course, they had 16 players on the Croke Park pitch for a late 45 in the final. A replay had been ordered, but the CCCC met Kilmacud today and it was agreed that Croaks would withdraw their appeal to Glenn's objection. Glenn had withdrawn from the process last Friday. Now let's uh, look ahead to uh, what could be something very special uh, this weekend. Uh, Ireland against France in the Six Nations Championship. We'll be hearing from the Ireland coach in a moment. Uh, and uh, Bernard Jackman will be joining us as well. With me in studio is uh, Brett Igo, lecturer in sports performance analysis. Brett, as, as we said, I think uh, a game like this on Saturday, even people who aren't necessarily rugby fans or whatever, I think it really has grabbed their attention, hasn't it? Oh, look, Dave, it's number one in the world versus number two in the world. Look, that's that's what we're here for. That's where we want to be. We want to test ourselves against the French team. World Cup in France in six, seven months' time. Let's see where we are. Yeah, certainly. It, it could be something um, really special. Uh, as you say, the top two uh, nations in world rugby playing in Dublin on Saturday afternoon. But let's get to the team news. Andy Farrell making out one change in personnel for the Guinness Six Nations game with France. Rob Herring comes in for Dan Sheehan, who is unavailable due to a hamstring injury. Uh, Ronan Kelleher returns from injury to take his place on the replacements bench. Now, uh, in the uh, last uh, hour or so, uh, Michael Corcoran has been speaking to the Ireland coach Andy Farrell. You've named the team to play France. A French guy on the way and said it's the new Le Crunch. Um, in terms of your team selection, uh, you just one change, an enforced change this week. Uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to have a bit of continuity and I see that they've done exactly the same so we feel that we've um, we have a strong side going into it um, and not just a strong starting side but a very strong bench as well to hopefully finish it off. And in terms of naming the team, I suppose, did last week prove that you expect the unexpected in, in terms of the 48 hours before a game? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's the way that we um, we uh, we train. That's the way that we prepare. Um, I've um, I've no concerns of anyone pulling out um, 
tomorrow actually you know we've we've got a captain's run tomorrow that we need to get through and uh, I, I've no concerns with the people that we've got um, in waiting uh, in, in the hotel that could just uh, fill a gap just like that and will not miss a beat so I'm, I'm pleased uh, where we're at as far as that's concerned. And how happy are you that given the performance last week and the the strength of the scoreboard in, in your favour that there's still quite a lot to come from this team? Well, there is, and uh, there's uh, been obviously open and honest discussions all week of, of what that looks like and, and how we push forward with that. So there's a realisation of where our game needs to go to this week. Um, so we're expecting an improvement across the board. What are you expecting from France? Certainly maybe not a repeat of last week. Uh, certainly not. Um, but having said that, they still found a way, and that's what they've been pretty good at over the last 12 months finding a way to win big games uh, especially so um, the threats are still the same aren't they they're dangerous on the on the, on the break obviously aggressively aggressive defensively aggressive in the um, defensive breakdown as well and so um, across the board uh, I think they know a lot about our game and certainly we know a lot about about them as well but um, it's a special day, isn't it? Big game that everyone's building up and who holds the nerve and, and, and plays to their the potential on the day. France have had a phenomenal year. I mean, their results have been absolutely brilliant. So too have yours, that's the reality. They won the Grand Slam last year. Um, you're the number one ranked team in the world. I mean, it's set for a, a fantastic occasion, maybe one if you weren't working that you might like to go along to yourself. I'd love to, I'd love to uh, go along to the game, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, this is what's special about the Six Nations, isn't it? Um, I think Northern Hemisphere rugby is in a good place at this moment in time. Um, two good teams really going at it, but in reality, you know, um, somebody somebody will win and, and somebody will lose. Um, but the the next three games that we've got after that are just as important, you know. So um, improving week on week is 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 what we're after. And uh, as you said, there's there's plenty of improving in us. And just a final question for you to win this game, apart from the obvious of outscoring France, how are you going to do that? Outscore France. Um, well, look, I mean, the obvious things are the obvious things. You know, everyone talks about the basics, being good at the basics, but they're not basic for me. They're the fundamentals of the game that you need to be good at. And there's a lot of, lot of intricacies that have to go into having a solid solid and dominant set piece etc you know and uh, having a dominant um, go forward defensive defensive line that's going to take the game to, to the French so um, yeah getting those fundamentals right first and foremost and then you know expressing ourselves in, in, in a way that we know we can do um, on, a, on, a, on a big day here at the Aviva. Michael Corcoran speaking today to Ireland coach Andy Farrell now let's get into the uh, pre-match discussion less than 48 hours now to go to this uh, eagerly anticipated game I think it's uh, safe to say that uh, we're going to get into it now with uh, rugby analyst Brett Igo and uh, Bernard Jackman who joins us uh, now Bernard first of all in terms of the team selection obviously uh, Andy Farrell had to make one change um, what do you make of the, the team that will be lining up against France at the weekend? Yeah look and obviously you're missing some first choice players in Sheen, Furlong uh, Gibson Park but last week we saw some late changes some late disruptions and Ireland not really missing a, a beat and, and Farrell would certainly be hoping that that's the same Rob Herring is a very good 
uh, set piece hooker, uh, very experienced. Paul O'Connell is a huge fan of his, particularly around his line out work. So I don't think that we'll, we'll lose anything there, but we definitely will lose um, some mobility, some X factor um, in Dan Sheen. He's just been phenomenal, um, phenomenal over the last 12, 18 months, and he's probably one of the form hookers in the world. So that is a bit of a blow. Um, but luckily, Kelleher's back from injury, so you know he gives us a um, good option off the bench. And Conor Murray did, did really well last week, and obviously there's a bit of a doubt about him, but looks like he's going to play. So I think we're not as strong as we could be, but it's still a, a, a formidable side, and hopefully it's good enough to get the job done. Brett, top-class sport is obviously all about results, and the results went Ireland's way last weekend, and uh, we're obviously in, in good heart uh, heading into the weekend game with France. France uh, winning last week again against Italy as well, perhaps uh, not that impressively, but um, in terms of the Ireland performance now, just just looking at the performance and, and maybe uh, areas to improve in for, for Saturday, what would you say? Yeah, look, our penalty count was probably a bit too high for Andy Farrell's liking. It was into the double figures. Ideally, we'd be looking at around eight or nine penalties in the game. Uh, we were in 13. The French were at 18. However, we, we were playing away from home in a pretty hostile environment. You know, the away team does generally give away um, more penalties than the home team. So that's one area. You want to sort out the discipline. You give this French team field position. They will cause damage. Um, other areas of slight concern for me is the missed tackles in the outside channels. I know Gary has missed a few and the two wingers have missed quite a lot. And I just think it's an area that we can polish up on. We've got some very good players out there. And, and they generally don't make these mistakes but for whatever reason they did last week we can't afford those mistakes this weekend Bernard would you share a lot of those concerns? Yeah I would and, and particularly worrying because well, let's be honest Wales um, didn't stretch us or shouldn't have stretched us so much in attack and they certainly don't have the players in the form or with the ability that France have with the likes of Fiku, Peno, Dumortier. Um, and that's in the wider channels. Never mind, you know, 9-10 access to Dupont and, and Intermac, who are both very, very good at sniffing a, an opportunity to, to go themselves or, or get their hands free in contact. So we are going to be stretched. The French team, you know, people talk about this French team and, and French flair. They, they tend to play in fits and starts, but... Um, when they're in a, when they're on, they're on and play at a massive speed with a lot of quality, a lot of power, a lot of pace. So they will present a different a, a different attacking threat to Ireland than we get pretty much any other week of the year. Uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see how we step up to that. Brett, just going back to the French game last weekend, as we said, they they got over the line against Italy in the end, and they have named an unchanged team to face Ireland. Were you surprised at that? Um, no, not really. Um, I think Galtier is, uh, goes to his regulars and who he knows. He's obviously carrying a few injuries as well, but he, he's, he's got the tried and tested. He still has his usual halfbacks in, possession, in position uh, and, and this is where they go. Um, my thing about France um, at the weekend, they have a six-day turnaround to come to Dublin. They made over 200 tackles. They carried the ball over 120 times. That's hugely fatiguing for such big men. Um, they've spent the week in Rome, and now they've got to travel to Dublin. That They've got to add a travel day to, to their preparations, which probably isn't ideal for them. They've had two away games. And I think that's, good. that's going to be a huge factor going into the last 20 minutes of this game. Bernard, I've been guilty of this myself and uh, it's been said uh, in terms of headlines all week about this being potentially a grand slam decider. Obviously, uh, everybody in the Ireland and uh, France camps will say it isn't, but is it? 
Yeah, look, I think it is, to be honest, um, on form over the last season, but also in terms of on last weekend's viewing, you know, Scotland-England was a, was a very um, entertaining game, but I don't think many pundits left thinking that the Grand Slam or the Six Nations winner was playing a trick in him. Um, and while France didn't play well in Italy, as Andy Farrell said, they got the job done. And they have a lot of credit in the bank. They're 14 games unbeaten. They're the Grand Slam winners. Um, they have beaten the All Blacks, South Africa, uh, Australia, and look to be a team who have further growth in them. So, yeah, I think this. I think there is a divide. I think the top two are a little bit better than, uh, significantly better than the others, and this should be the game to decide the championship and potentially a Grand Slam. Brett, Johnny Sexton has missed the last two games against France uh, because of injury. So uh, particularly uh, encouraging news uh, regarding his uh, concern yesterday and to see him obviously lined out as captain and he remains such a key player for Ireland. Yeah, well, look, we, we've got to keep Johnny on the pitch for as long as possible. However, Ross Byrne has come on and he's been absolutely excellent. I thought when he came on with 12 to go um, in Cardiff last weekend, he was excellent. We got the bonus point try with him him on the field and not, not uh, being disrespectful of what Johnny did before that, but it, w- it was probably the right time to bring him on. Um, Johnny is an inspirational leader to these players. Um, he, he has been former World Player of the Year. He's, he's the heartbeat of this team. However, I have seen in the last while with, with, with Leinster in particular and now it's inching into Ireland, we have another 10. Johnny's it's not the only man in that jersey we have people that can back it up and, and play at this level and comfortably play at this level and can lead our team on Barrett just away from the game for a moment um, disappointing news yesterday for uh, um, uh, Andrew Conway regarding his injury yeah look he's, he's not having much much luck when he's fit um, he's always been a player that Andy Farrell has has rated um, highly and has given lots of game time to. Um, so it is a bitter blow to, for him and, and for Munster, obviously, as they look towards a Champions Cup quarterfinal and, and, and hopefully, you know, a strong URC finish. But look, the, the medical care that the Irish rugby players get is is top notch and um, hopefully hopefully he can, he can get back to fitness soon. And Brad, obviously, you um, uh, you know spent a lot of time in terms of uh, you know analysing uh, the games and uh, you know where people are going wrong, where they can improve, where 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 uh, mistakes are, are being made. But just in terms of France and French rugby in general, and the, the flair, the traditional flair of, of French rugby, would you would you be a, a big fan of their their style of play? Oh, look, I'm I'm a huge fan of, of French rugby and have been for for a number of years. I'm a huge fan of Toulouse. Who- who supply these these um, the French national team with a majority of players similar to, to the way Leinster supply a majority of players to the national team yeah look it's it's fantastic to watch however there's probably a slight bit of a myth about around it they play they look to play in the right areas of the pitch um, I think if you if you go back over the games last week each game had over 50 kicks in it um, so they do kick they do get themselves in position um, pretty effectively um, I know Birch mentioned it earlier on their injection of pace when needed is what Ireland are going to have to deal with um, when they needed a bonus point try or they needed points against Italy you saw them going up the gears and they're able to do it they're able they've got massive impact off the bench uh, and this is what they can do but in terms of the romantic way of the way France play and every single collision turns into an offload yeah I'm not too sure that's true the Wales team announcement today, Bernard, um, Warren Gatland clearly uh, not afraid to make uh, a big calls, uh, a number of big calls, including uh, Alan Wynne-Jones not being in the team for the weekend. 
Yeah, look, in fairness to Gatlin, he doesn't have much time and, and he put a lot of trust in some of the loyal lieutenants that he had before he left in 2019 for the first round against Ireland. And while they rallied in the third quarter, it was a very, very poor performance. So I think he needs to find a group quickly who he can trust and, and who are going to get Wales back being competitive. Um, obviously, 2022 was horrendous for them losing to Italy at home and, and Georgia in November. Um, so, yeah, he has to be drastic. He, he feels it's an old team. He was willing to go to that World Cup with that group if they performed. They didn't. Um, I know it's only one game, but he... He just run out of games, so I suppose um, this is what you're going to see. You're going to see a lot of chopping and changing from Wales uh, over the short term to try and find some kind of consistency by the time they get to France in, uh, in the autumn. And Brett, why do you see the the key areas uh, in this game on Saturday? In the Welsh game? No, the Ireland game. Ireland, oh, France, the, sorry. Or look, we've got to keep our penalty count low. I think we've got to slow them down. Um, we've been pretty effective in our defensive patterns of of leave, leaving lazy um, defenders, I'm going to call them, but strategically leaving players in the tackle area. And we just to slow DuPont down and just to slow the whole French momentum down, we've got to try and get into that space. Um, we've also got to control the line-out battle. What Ireland will do is we will defend at the back and the middle and we'll force them to the front um, and it'll be interesting to see how, how France deal with that will they go with their mall it's interesting they've got a 6-2 split on the bench so they've six forwards and just two backs which Ireland have a 5-3 split on their bench so I think by the selection of the bench is, is giving us a strong message the way Galtier wants to approach this game in Dublin this weekend Bernard just give us an overall sense of your feeling are you optimistic? Yeah, I am optimistic. I think Sexton being back, um, I think this team are very comfortable. I was talking to a French journalist today and he said the, the Irish game plan, it's uh, regularly come up happy of the music, which basically means it's as organised as a sheet of music. And I think it is. I think it is. I think all the parts come together uh, really well and hopefully that, that can help us overcome the power deficit and maybe just the, the, the natural brilliance deficit that, that France that we have against France. But uh, I'll be comfortable with a home crowd. Wayne Barnes being, being on the ball as a referee. Um, we'll, we'll get a win. Well, there will be a comprehensive coverage right across uh, all RT platforms of that big game on Saturday, Ireland against France at the Aviva. Gentlemen, thank you. Game on. Eye on America. Now, Super Bowl 57 is almost upon us. For the first time, the Philadelphia Eagles and the Kansas City Chiefs go head-to-head in the championship game. The Eagles' last Lombardi Trophy win came in 2018, the Chiefs three years ago in 2020. On Sunday night, the eyes of the sporting world will be firmly focused on the State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. Chiefs. You're gonna have to deal with the 
And you get a sense there just of some of the excitement and anticipation ahead of Super Bowl 57. Let's uh, discuss now all the... Uh, subplots and all the stories ahead of the big game. Uh, we'll be speaking in a moment to uh, Jeff Shepard, of course, our man in America, regular contributor to uh, Game On. But first, let's speak to Irish NFL podcast presenter Colm Cronin, who joins us now live from Radio Row in Arizona. Uh, just just give us a sense, Colm, of the, the past week for you. And as a big NFL fan, it must be somewhat of a, of a, of a dream week for you, is it? Oh, it absolutely is, Dave. It's truly been incredible. Arizona and Phoenix have been amazing hosts. And really, this week has been bigger and better than ever. Obviously, over the past couple of years, due to the COVID restrictions, I mean, two years ago, everything was basically virtual. Um, they, they had hardly anyone in the stands, uh, some medical um, personnel. Then last year, we saw it kind of get back to normal. Um, but then all of a sudden, this year, it really has taken off. Uh, you... The, the media center radio row is probably four times bigger than it was last year. And then you are seeing the fans flocking. Phoenix is absolutely full. Of course, you have a huge golf tournament on here at the moment as well. Um, but I have yet to see a Kerry or a Mayo jersey, but I have no, no doubt that we'll probably see one in, in the crowd on Sunday. Absolutely. Nothing sure. And just give us a sense of the media circus that surrounds the Super Bowl. It is enormous. There, there really isn't anything like it because it is a full week of build-up, David. It kicks off on Monday night and it was held down where the Phoenix Suns play. And they, there were literally thousands of people there. And the, the players were, it looked like they were in Jetson-type pods and uh, people were asking questions, but you also had various players kind of walking around and taking questions as well. And throughout the week then on Radio Row, all the celebrities are here, all the personalities. Pat McAfee does his live show from here. Kay Adams is doing her her live show. Um, Fox Sports, you name it, they're, they're all here. And it's a full week. They, they all do live shows right from here. The NFL Fanic, it's an opportunity for fans to get to you know, try on uh, the gear to do some of the drills that the players have, all of the history, um, and also the NFL. I mean, truly, uh, America and the NFL do everything bigger and, and better. And the NFL store, I've, I've never seen anything like it. It is like St Stevens Green Shopping Centre, Dave, um, but it's just full of NFL gear. Shep, um, let's just uh, follow on from that point. In terms of the uh, global TV audience for Super Bowl 56, just over 101 million. I know it still rates really well still in the States after all of these years. What is the enduring appeal of the Super Bowl? Well, look, I mean, you know, we've, we've said years before, you know, it's uh, that baseball is America's pastime, football is America's passion. And, you know, really for the last, you know, four months of the year or so, every Sunday, now it's Thursday, Sunday, Monday, you know, the NFL is the king. I mean, you'll go back at the end of the year and you'll look at the most watched sport, the most watched television events, you know, throughout the year, and it's always NFL football games. And the Super Bowl is a culmination of that. So, you know, this year in particular, you've got some superstar players, um, you know, one of the biggest cities in America. You've got a great halftime. Uh, show expected with Rihanna and it's just an opportunity to you know have friends and family over to have one more big party and it's I mean it is the commercials it's the halftime show 
and it's the football game. And so it's just a lot of that. You know, it's just it, everything is just bigger. It just means more with this weekend. And as we touched upon earlier, there's so many subplots uh, ahead of, I suppose, any Super Bowl. But this one, tell me the, the, the backstory regarding the, the coaches, of course, uh, Nick Serrani and Andy Reid. Yeah, so Andy Reid coached um, in Philadelphia for 13 years and, and came, you know, about one quarter shy of, you know, beating the Patriots in a Super Bowl uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and then he was, you know, let go um, in, in Philadelphia. And a couple of days later, he's named as the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, and he's been there now for about a decade or so. He's got a Super Bowl win. He lost a Super Bowl in the COVID year to the to the uh, Buccaneers, um, and this is his third, you know, Super Bowl, uh, you know, appearance in five years. They win the AFC Championship game the other two years, so he has clearly, you know, demonstrated how great of a coach he is. He's he's won a hundred games at two different franchises. He is a clear Hall of Fame you know, future Hall of Fame football coach. And then you've got Nick Sirianni there uh, who replaced Brad Peterson a couple of years ago, worked for um, Andy Reid a couple of years ago. And, and this was his first head coaching job and never really called a play before. And he took a gamble with, with the draft, you know, with Jalen Hurts. And when they had, um, you know, they had uh, quarterbacks on staff there already, you know, that had just won Super Bowls themselves just a couple of years prior. Um, but he has just built a great team in my opinion, they, he, the Eagles are the best team in the NFL this season. And, um, I mean, a lot of it has to do with their young head coach who's been pretty fearless. And, Colm, an interesting evening ahead for the Kelsey family. Yeah, absolutely. The the first brothers to play in the, the Super Bowl against one another. And many people were referring to it as the, the Kelsey Bowl, but they... Uh, Jason um, and his brother Travis have said they don't want it referred to as that but they even their mother has been here this week yeah, we've seen her she is wearing a half and half jacket Eagles and Chiefs and she actually asked Roger Goodell the NFL commissioner who does an annual press conference she was the first one to ask him a question which was would he go on the Kelsey Brothers podcast and he did agree to, to do that <laughs> it will be fa- it, it will be fascinating to see so they, they are two they, they they clearly have a, a wonderful relationship, but they are incredibly different personalities. Um, Travis is very gregarious, very outgoing, very fashionable. Uh, Jason, much more um, you know, laid back, uh, kind of thoughtful and, and reflective. Um, so uh, it, it will be interesting to, to see how they face up against one another and how their mother, Donna, will uh, celebrate uh, when one of them uh, lifts the Lombardi Trophy. And, Shep, uh, an interesting story as well and quite a historical uh, story in terms of the significance regarding the two quarterbacks. And I know this has been uh, quite a big story surrounding the Super Bowl ahead of the the game itself. Yeah, so this is the first game where we'll have two African-American quarterbacks starting uh, in the Super Bowl. Look, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Doug Williams did it uh, for the Washington Redskins back in the mid-'80s. And so, um, you know, both Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts kind of recognizing their place in history. Um, and, you know, look, let's just be honest. I mean, they're the quarterbacks. They are going to be the central figures in this football game. Uh, Patrick Mahomes' health dealing with a what has been called a high ankle sprain, um, you know, since the week, the, the second, uh, their, the first playoff game against uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars in round two. Uh, that's the X factor in this football game, Dave. I mean, whether or not, you know, how healthy is he? Look, if he has to go out of a game, go out of this game for two series or three series because he's injured or has to go get taped up, that's going to be a major 
factor in the outcome of this football game. And so that's all the eyes um, uh, in this football game are going to be watching, you know, what his ankle is doing. Okay, gents, briefly, I'm going to ask both of you to call it on Sunday evening. Column first. Uh, I'm going to say I think the the Eagles, Shep said it earlier, they have the best team. I think that will make the difference. I think football is a game often won in the trenches. And even though the Chiefs have the best quarterback in the league in Patrick Mahomes, who I believe will be MVP, I think the Eagles just have the talent all over the field. And I think their edge rushers will be able to make life really difficult in a way that Tampa were able to do. So I'm going to lean to the Eagles. But I could end up with egg on my face because Patrick Mahomes is that good. Shep, what do you think? I agree literally with everything Gollum just said. I mean, I think the Eagles are the better team. I think they have a, a better offensive line and a better defensive line, even though Kansas City's defensive line is very good. The X factor, again, is Patrick Mahomes. Does he just do some unbelievable Patrick Mahomes thing that we've never seen before like he's been known to do? Um, he has an opportunity to win his second Super Bowl before the age of 27 and really claim the throne of the best in the NFL. I just feel like the Eagles are a little bit better, um, and they're going to win this game. And I think it's a close one. I mean, it's coin flip, basically, when it comes to the spread. And I think the Eagles win their second title in the last couple of years but I, I think it's a close one Gentlemen, many thanks for talking to us we'll speak to you soon, enjoy the game Thank you, thanks Game on European football Now it hasn't gone away you know A22 Sports Management are proposing a new European Super League, the 20 team Super League proposal with 12 founding members of course collapsed within days in April of 2021, this new look competition would have no permanent members and up to 80 clubs involved with a minimum of 14 games for each club per season. The clubs would continue in their domestic leagues. The A22 chief executive is Bernd Reichardt. Last October, we began an open dialogue on the future of European club football. Since then, we have spoken to nearly 50 European clubs and other stakeholders. The vast majority of them share the assessment that the very foundation of European football is under threat. It is time for change. European club football is at a tipping point. Huge imbalances have emerged across the continent and clubs with glorious European traditions are no longer able to compete. Clubs bear all entrepreneurial risks, but too often are forced to sit on the sidelines when key decisions are made and they are watching their sporting and financial foundations crumble. And our discussions have made clear clubs are often unable to publicly speak up against a system where the threat of sanctions is used to stifle opposition. Later this year, the Court of Justice of the European Union will rule on the legality and the compatibility of the wafer monopoly with the fundamental freedoms, principles and values of the EU. Their decision will impact not only football, but all European sports. Our objective is to present a sustainable sporting project for European club competitions, available at a minimum to all 27 EU member states. Today, we present the preliminary results of the first phase of our dialogue, which has been honest, direct and constructive. And there are clear conclusions about the need for change and the building blocks of how to achieve it. 
We have distilled the consistent feedback into 10 principles, which should set the framework for a future European club competition. Clearly, there is more work to be done and the dialogue will continue. We are now entering the decisive phase for the future governance of European club football. And that is the A22 Chief Executive Bernd Reichardt. Now, in a statement, the European Clubs Association said it noted the latest dispatch from what they call A22's alternative reality. Their statement continues, in the real world, this rehashed idea has already been proposed, discussed and comprehensively rejected by all stakeholders in 2019. This is just another deliberately distorted and misleading attempt to destabilise the constructive work currently taking place between football's real stakeholders to move things forward. Referencing the new club competition format, which will start in 2024, the ECA say from 2024, more clubs from more countries will participate in European men's club competitions every season. The statement concludes by saying this is what real change looks like. We have moved on. When will A22? I'm joined by football journalist Fergal Brennan. Fergal, uh, quite a bit to take in there. It is indeed. And I think we kind of to go back to the beginning of what you said, the words European Super League coming back. I don't really think they've they've gone away um in terms of in terms of the clubs that were primarily interested in this, Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Juventus, don't forget, when it fell apart in twenty twenty one, they stuck by it. It's not maybe as publicly as as uh, they did when it was initially announced, announced. Sorry, but they all said from the get-go that they want to remain involved in it and that they want to remain involved in a conversation whereby there should be, should be, or could be some form of a of a European Super League. Um, one of the biggest issues and one of the reasons why it all fell apart was the way that it was put across. It was this concerted effort by the 12 original clubs that were involved and obviously there was major fan backlash and criticism and also the clubs not involved coming out and, and criticising it and then there was a, a counter-criticism of a kind of uh, cynical response that when there are other issues within UEFA that they don't come out and speak out against that. So it, it was a mess effectively. And I think what A22 are trying to put across this time round is the idea that it would be a closed shop, that there'd be no promotion or relegation, that it would be a set amount of members locked in for, for all eternity, for all intents and purposes. They've now come back with this proposal that removes that aspect of it. And I think the main takeaway, particularly from the from the comments today from A22, is they've misjudged the situation again in terms of what the fan response will be. Fans were angered by this idea of a closed shop, but that was only one of a huge list of issues that they had with the European Super League. This idea of creating this competition that would have up to 80 teams, which is pretty incredible when you throw in the fact that there's three UEFA club competitions at the moment. It addresses in a very superficial way one of the things that fans were concerned about. But on the list of concerns, it was it was pretty far down. One of the uh, reports I saw today on Sky Sports was suggesting that, as you mentioned there, the... the um promotion and, and relegation uh, aspect of this new proposal but what Sky seemed to be suggesting was that the the clubs that would possibly get into this um, uh, format of, of, of 80 clubs or whatever would be very much at the, the bottom end of it so in other words as you said at the moment we have the Champions League we have the Europa League and the mm-hmm. Europa Conference League so the three it's three tiered European uh, club competition uh, format 
as it stands and so that the, the really elite clubs or whatever in this new competition would nev- effectively never be in any danger of, of, of being relegated from it. Yeah, exactly that, because the, the structure of this proposed new competition would still have a an almost protected scenario for the Big 12 or the Big 16, etc., where there'd be no change or certainly very little change over 5, 10, however many years down the line. And that situation would just continue. And there are major issues within UEFA in terms of structurally and organisation, in terms of how they lay out competitions. And there's there's a tone deaf angle from both sides here, from A22 and UEFA, and this notion that UEFA are putting forward that they're kind of the guardians of European football and fan interests, etc., is also not really accurate because they are also in a position of expanding the competition, not to let the, the the so-called lesser teams from from teams with a lower coefficient or less chances of participating in a European competition, they're not really interested in them having a a bigger seat at the table, they want to still protect the established order whilst effectively pretending that they're concerned about smaller teams, smaller clubs, their finances, their ability to grow and and, and develop. And it's obviously a more palatable solution than what A22 or obviously the European Super League was originally put across as. But in terms of the right direction that either project is going in, it's not particularly positive for fans full stop. And as the... uh... European Club Association reference today. The new format for the Champions League, which starts in 24-25, will see more teams in the Champions League. It will see more games. It obviously will be more money for the clubs. I mean, that is, in effect, a a new Super League starting right there and then, isn't it? It is. And I think this, again, to go back to 2021, this shows how the greed of the original 12 clubs that were involved was was kind of held a mirror up to because what the UEFA are effectively proposing from 24-25 onwards is a Super League. So UEFA effectively said to these teams, you are protected, you are, you are bulletproof from here on out. All you've got to do is just agree to the format that we're putting forward. But the original 12 clubs and now potentially more, they wanted more. They wanted more money. They wanted more of a return on investment because... Ultimately, from an ownership perspective, there are club ownership uh, structures at the moment, and and there will be more in the next few years, that their primary interest is a return on investment. And, you know, we all know that an element of romanticism of of Premier League or or top flight football has gone. We're, We're all well aware of that. But now we're in a position whereby club owners are effectively saying, can we get more from this product? Will the European Super League more guarantee us a bigger return on investment than the current or expanded version of the Champions League. And in their mind, it does. Um, and, and that, again, just shows this this idea that UEFA have made this incredible offer, financial offer to the clubs, and they still want more. We leave the uh, Super League talk there for the moment. But as you say, Fergal, it's, uh, it's not going away. And I'm sure we will uh, return to it in the uh, coming weeks and months and possibly years, who knows. But just in terms of uh, tomorrow, I don't know about you, Fergal, but uh, there's one press conference I'm really looking forward to tomorrow, and that's uh, Pep Guardiola's at Manchester City. 
Yeah, um, eagle-eyed non-Manchester City fans will be will be tuning in for this one because he's he's been quite straightforward in the past when the subject of financial issues or charges against the the financial affairs of Manchester City have come up, and he said that if it's proven unequivocally that that is the case, that you know there's been fabrication of of um, financial accounts or inflation or deflation of, of money coming in or going out, that he will walk away. Um, I don't expect there to be fireworks in the press conference tomorrow. As much as we're all like that, I think he'll be incredibly well briefed. And even though he does speak his mind, this is an incredibly serious topic that the club will want to remove him from and allow them to work on behind the scenes. But the charges are as they are. There's not been a great deal of change over the last two or three days. This is not something that's going to be solved um, in the short term, both City's defence against the charges and the Premier League's case against them. It will be the first question that gets asked in the press conference tomorrow. I have no doubt not about that. Not only the first, it'll be in the second of, and the third and the fourth as well, I'd imagine. Yeah. In, uh, in terms of Guardiola's reaction, I think it, it will, I think we'll get more than just a stock response because that's the way that he operates. But he's not going to answer um, anything with any great amount of detail. And in reality, what most football fans want to know is, is he going to stick by his previous word, which is, I will walk away if these charges are proven. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. As you say, he no doubt will be extremely well briefed because he's had uh, plenty of uh, time to uh, get prepared for this um, given the events of uh, earlier in the week. Just a a mention of uh, Leeds United and Manchester United last night. Of course, Leeds going to Old Trafford uh, without a manager and uh, they nearly came away with what would have been a famous win. But uh, nonetheless, they will take a lot of encouragement from that point in the end, I'd imagine. They will, and it's obviously been a difficult start to, to 2023 for Leeds. They find themselves now slipping into a situation where it's going to be another relegation battle and, and Jesse March has, has paid the penalty, he's lost his job and, and the club are now looking for another manager. Um, this is a situation whereby I think their first, second choice options are probably going to say no. Andoni Areola, who's a Rayo Baicano manager in Spain, has, has already ruled himself out there fifth and pushing for Europe. He doesn't fancy a, a Premier League relegation battle. So I think they're going to have to delve down a bit deeper to, to get a replacement in. A positive result last night. You would expect that. Obviously, players are in this situation where they know when the writing is on the wall that a manager is going to go. And generally speaking, whether it's a new manager bounce or a temporary manager bounce, there's normally a bit of a positive reaction. And, and that's what they got last night. They got a point that probably under Jesse March they wouldn't have got. Um, but in terms of a replacement, I don't think it will be in place this weekend when they take on Man United again. Um, but probably by next weekend, they should have a new manager in and it's going to be a hell of a job for, for whoever gets it. And just returning to City for a moment, City at home to uh, Aston Villa at the weekend, Arsenal at home to Brentford, Arsenal and City playing each other next Wednesday. Would we expect that the gap will still be five points heading into that game? Uh, that's a, I would, yeah, you would, you would assume based on the way things are expected to shake down this weekend because Arsenal have normally been playing catch-up to City over, over the last few weekends where they've played in the the later fixture you'd expect them both to win this weekend and there's a huge amount riding on that um, in in, uh, in midweek next week because if City win it the title race is on if Arsenal win it you'd expect they, they could be almost home and dry Fergal thank you Game on on 2FM Ireland are among the 10 nations competing at this year's T20 Women's Cricket World Cup. The tournament begins tomorrow with Ireland in Group B, along with England, India, Pakistan and the West Indies. Ireland's opening game is on Monday against England. 
The tournament is being staged in South Africa and Irish Times journalist Nathan Johns will be heading there. Um, you're very welcome along, Nathan. Just in terms of Ireland's preparations, obviously a very encouraging win yesterday over Australia, but am I right in saying it wasn't the the strongest Australian team? Well, I think the, the caveat to that win is the fact that two Australia batters uh, scored half centuries and, and they retired them out. So they swapped them out with, with someone else to kind of give the squad a go. So, you know, in a, on another day, if that's an actual World Cup game, someone like Alyssa Healy, who scored 62, she, she's going to keep going and just getting better and better. So Ireland would have been chasing, a, in, in all likelihood, a, a, more, a, a higher score. Um, how much higher is impossible to say. But look, at the end of the day, uh, they'll take that win. And you can certainly see from the reaction both over there and here how much um, how, how much people are taking notice that uh, the world champions were beaten certainly yeah I mean to, to, to beat a, a country of uh, Austria's uh, ranking uh, so close to the tournament itself is, 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 is obviously a, a good thing but in, in the current T20 world rankings Ireland are 10th at the moment so on that basis is qualification for the semi-finals really too much to hope for do you think? Uh, not at all. I think those rankings are a little bit outdated at this stage. Um, ever since full-time professional contracts came in, just 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 under twelve months ago now, uh, this side has has gone from strength to strength. It's amazing what happens when the when you put a bit of investment into into the sport. I mean, they they beat Pakistan most notably last November away from home, the first time they've won a series away from home, and uh, they've been, they've been in decent form, like we mentioned um, out in South Africa for the warm ups. They beat Bangladesh as well, and you look at that group. You know, you mentioned their first game is against England. Then they've got Pakistan, West Indies and India. Now, we mentioned they beat Pakistan. West Indies are a side in turmoil at the minute. So those are two games that Ireland, you know, in all likelihood should be winning. And then you're only a good day out against India or England away from a semi-final. So I, I don't think it's adding too much um, expectation on this side to say that, you know, they will they will be not definitely not among the favourites to qualify, but, you know, they will be disappointed if they don't. And Nathan, just tell us about you know the type of players maybe we should be looking out for uh, over the next couple of weeks and the, the makeup of this squad in relation to uh, you know uh, part-time and full-time players. Yep, of course. So we mentioned those contracts came in about around a year or so ago. There's seven players on full-time contracts. The rest are more or less on part-time deals because of education or other reasons. And I think that that gives you an indication as to the age profile of the side. It's very young, lots of university students and even the odd the odd school student in there uh, to go with the seven full-time pros. Um, the players to look out for, look, everybody, everybody is at this stage is aware of the likes of Gabby Lewis, the opening batter who... Um, you know, one player of the series when they beat Pakistan in November. Um, she's ably supported at the top of the order by Amy Hunter. They're both two very young players. I think the most important player for them is going to be Orla Prendergast. She's, she's an all-rounder, so she bats up the order. and She also bowls um, with the new ball as well and is probably their, their biggest wicket-taking threat with the new ball and how she goes um, will be vital. A couple of more experienced heads in there. The skipper, Laura Delaney, she's... She likes to. She doesn't bat as as aggressively as some of the other players, but she's out, she's kind of like the glue that keeps that side together. Um, Ema Richardson is also very experienced. She's based in based in New Zealand and plays professionally out there. So she's she's played to a very high standard. Um, she bowls and, and bats as well. Um, one player that they will miss is, is Rebecca Stokel. She bats down the end and is been like their best player at, at scoring quickly at the end of the innings. And she's she's been ruled out with a foot injury, so she'll be a significant blow. And tell me about the former Dublin minor footballer who will be representing Australia. Kim Garth, yes, of course. That's a, that's a, look, it's a great story. Kim debuted for Ireland. I think she was 14 years old when she debuted for Ireland. 
Um, she played over a hundred times. Like you said, she, she played GA as well. Um, I, and she got an opportunity to go out to Australia before Ireland became a, a full member nation of, of world cricket. Um, there was a program to send develop, you know, players from developing cricket countries out to, out to Australia just, just to train at that point. It wasn't even to play, play competitive matches, just to train and experience what it was like for a few weeks to be a pro. She obviously made a bit of an impression over there because they asked her back. And I think the second time, the second year she went back, there was an injury in their squad and she ended up playing um, competitively in the big bash league over there. And look, they just asked her to come back and she very quickly realised because she played for Ireland, she would take up an overseas slot um, and that was an issue because those are limited. So she gave up playing for Ireland so that she could go qualify as a local. And she spent three years in Australia. She withstood COVID. She didn't see her family for years. Obviously, Australia was a very difficult place to to get, get in and out of. And then earlier this year, she qualified for Australia and she, and she went straight into their squad, basically. Played just before Christmas. And um, and she's in their squad at the minute at the at the World Cup. She hasn't been playing. She's not on the starting eleven at the minute, I don't think. But she uh, she's in and around the squad for sure. And in terms of an overall winner, is it hard to look past Australia? Very hard, yeah. They're, they're definitely the most dominant side uh, historically and probably in the last year or so. And They won They won the longer 50-over World Cup last year. Um, India will be there, thereabouts as well. They're in the other group. They're in Ireland's group. Um, so that'll, that'll be a significant challenge. They've The last year or so, they've They've really got their house in order, so they'll they'll probably be Australia's most likely challengers. Um, England are always competitive as well, but I think the general sense this year is that Australia and Australia and India will be uh, the two favourite sides, and you know because they're in opposite sides of the draw, that could well be the final. And I suppose when Ireland are competing at a World Cup event in any sport, there's always a, a lot more eyes on that particular sport, and I'm sure everybody in cricket Ireland will be hoping that there's a you know plenty of interest. Uh, on this uh, team and on this tournament in the next couple of weeks? Well I, mean, well, I mean, it's the nature of cricket in Ireland. You've got your diehards who follow it, but you know the interest peaks when they go to World Cups and it spikes when they win matches at World Cups. I mean, it's an in- intricate part of the sport is the madness that goes on at home when everyone all of a sudden realises that there's a cricket tournament going on and Ireland are doing well in it. Um, it's It's been a while since the Irish women's side have, have kind of had that success. Uh, they haven't won a World Cup match in any format since since 2000. Um, they played in three, and this is the T20 World Cup, they played in three T20 World Cups, played 13 matches, not won, not won a single one. So as much as the last 20 years have seen the men's side have lots of success, the lack of investment in the women's side has, has shown a little bit. But, you know, this is the year that they've, they've had professional contracts. They're finally showing some really consistent good form. And look, the, I would be shocked even if even if they don't live up to expectations. I would be shocked if they don't earn that that first win at a T20 World Cup. And just uh, finally and briefly, you obviously will be travelling to South Africa in a work capacity. And clearly, from what you're saying, you're you're travelling in, uh, in 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 high hopes and and in high spirits and and hoping to witness something perhaps special. Oh, by all means, I think it's to be perfectly honest. This is the most anticipation I think there's been on any Irish side going into a, a World Cup for some time. I mean, you know, a semi-final is within reach. It's the nature of the tournament that there are fewer countries in it. You can you can put those caveats out if you want on it, but at the end of the day, it's not very often an Irish side can say that they actually you know have a shouting chance of reaching a World semi-final. So it's hard not to be excited about that. Nathan, enjoy the trip and hopefully uh, you'll be uh, plenty of uh, positive reports coming back from South Africa. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.
Well, that's it for tonight's programme. Ron Lawler produced. Laura Lee Davis was the broadcast coordinator. Betta De Silva is coming up after the 7pm news.